You're listening to the sermon podcast of Mountain View Church. Whether you're here catching up on last week's message or digging through a past series, we're so grateful you've tuned in today. Our prayer is the next 30 to 40 minutes helps you become a more whole follower of Jesus. If you're local and would like to join us, we'd love to see you this Sunday. For those who can't make it in person, services are also streamed on Facebook and YouTube. All the information about service times, what we have for kids, and much more can be found on our website, almsville.church. Now, let's open our hearts and minds to today's message. Well, good morning, Mountain View, Uh, those in person as well as those online. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, As Mike said, it's been a hot minute since I've been up here, Um, but I'm so excited. This uh, this message, message this morning has been something that has been stirring in my heart no joke for three years. Um, And so I am so excited to bring it to you. Uh, It also occurred to me um, that while most of you in the room know who I am and and know uh, that I'm a full-time homeschool mama and you recognize my crazy kids running around the halls of this church quite often, um, generally dressed in like princess dresses or wizard cloak or something like that, There's a lot of you that are new to the church, that are new here in person, as well as those online that may not know uh, Mike and I and our whole family. Um, You see Mike up here every week, but you don't necessarily always see our whole family. So I wanted to go ahead and introduce you and throw a picture up there. So this is our crew. Um, As you can see, we've got three beautiful kiddos. We have Aiden, who is 10, Addison, who is eight, and then Audrey, who is three, almost about to be four. Um, she's sitting in here, so this might be fun too. Um, so I've, you know, I've been a mom now for almost 11 years, and uh, I've learned a lot by having kids. One of the one of the things that I've learned by having kids is why moms always have snacks. Have you ever noticed that that moms, especially moms of littles, um, always, always have snacks on hand. And it's always like a plethora of snacks. It's never just an option. It's usually like, like we got goldfish, we got fruit snacks, we got applesauce. Take your pick, kid. And moms always seem to know when to pull the snacks out at just the right moment, right? They pull it out to avoid a meltdown so that they can survive a grocery store trip or get a phone call in, um, those that actually still make phone calls, um, or to just to simply be able to sit in church on a Sunday, right? It's because moms have learned that kids, sometimes adults too, but especially kids, get hangry, right? Y'all familiar with this term, right? So hangry is when we're hungry and our emotions kind of get the best of us because we're hungry and it comes out as being grumpy or even angry, And kids, especially younger kids, uh, don't know how to regulate their emotions at such a young age. And so they act very angry when they're hungry. Um, So a simple snack can diffuse a lot of situations, right? And I wonder, perhaps if a modern day mom had been traveling with Jesus and his disciples in the first century, we may not even have our passage that we're going to look at today. So turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 12. It says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, 
he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat of your fruit again. And his disciples heard him say it. And then skip down a bit to verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, I realize that this passage isn't strange in the sense that we have the dead getting up and walking around the city. And we don't have a man physically wrestling with God himself. But this passage is strange, right? For one, it appears as though Jesus is throwing a man-sized tantrum because he didn't get a snack, right? Was Jesus really just hangry here? You know, he seems to act quite rashly. Did you notice that Mark makes it a point to tell us that it's not the season for figs? So why such a harsh reaction on a poor tree that wasn't even expected to bear fruit yet? I mean, come on, Jesus, what did that tree ever do to you? Other thing that makes this so strange is that Jesus never, never uses miracles for himself. Right? At the beginning of his ministry, when he's been fasting for 40 days, and it's, he's quite hungry, far more hungry than he is here in this passage, he refused, when he was tempted, he refused to turn stones into bread to satisfy his own hunger. He did, however, turn five loaves of bread and two fish into a feast big enough to feed over 5,000 people with leftovers to satisfy their hunger, but he refused to use his divine power to satisfy his own because Jesus never uses miracles for his own sake. So what's going on here? And finally, what makes this passage so strange is that this is the only negative miracle in the gospels. This is the only time that we see Jesus use his divine power to bring death and destruction instead of healing and life. Now at the beginning of this series, Mike said that there are often two reasons that we seem to find things in the Bible to be weird. One of those is that we are weird, <laughs> right? He defined this as, as being an acronym, meaning we are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And then the other reason that Bible passages seem weird to us is because they're supernatural acts, right? By very definition, they go against the laws of nature. I think this particular passage is weird on both of these accounts. So today I want us to take a closer look and try to see if we can see this through the lens of a first century reader to get out of our weird lens that we read through and see it the way the first century audience would have read this passage. Now, if you were to read any commentaries on Jesus cursing the fig trees, they would all agree that this, this event is known as a physical parable. Now, if you're newer to church, maybe you, you aren't familiar with the word parable. It's often a word that we only use within church settings nowadays, um, though it was common in the time of Jesus. But a parable is 
simply a story that is used to convey a spiritual lesson or to illustrate a moral. Jesus speaks in parables quite often all throughout the New Testament. So when we say that the cursing of the fig tree is a physical parable, it means that it really physically took place. It was a physical, actual tree that actually withered after Jesus spoke the curse on it. Um, But that there is also a greater significance to the event. There's a greater lesson to be learned. Basically, this is not just about Jesus being hangry, but this is also not just about that tree. Some scholars connect this event to that of Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple. In both accounts, this, this cursing of the fig tree is recorded in both Matthew and Mark. And in both accounts, those stories go hand in hand. In the Gospel of Matthew, he records the, the temple event of Jesus running out, driving out the money changers to happen right before the cursing of the fig tree. In Mark, it actually happens right in the middle. Those are the verses that we skipped over as we were reading about the, the fig tree event. And so a lot of scholars will connect the two events and they see the fig tree as a sign of the coming destruction of the temple. That happened in AD 70. Some scholars see the tree as a symbol of Israel, right? The tree has leaves, but is bearing no fruit. For a fig tree, the full leaves come along with the first fruits, not before it. So some scholars see this act of cursing the fig tree as Jesus giving warning to the barrenness of Israel. And many pastors will take that interpretation and discuss how the tree represents us, that we are not to merely look holy, but to actually bear fruit as well. Now what I've learned and what I've discovered and I find insanely interesting is that in the first five centuries of Christianity, when the early Christ followers would read this passage, they saw in it something more significant, more profound, and for them, something that is at the very heart of the gospel. You see, the early Christians recognized first when this event took place. We might skip over that detail, but they would have recognized and tied in, their light bulbs would have gone off to recognize that this was happening on the Monday of Holy Week. Now, it wasn't that long ago that we were celebrating Easter. And so the Sunday before Easter is what the church recognizes as Palm Sunday. It's when Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. And then the whole week from then until Good Friday is is the the week that is known as Holy Week leading to the cross. So when he rides into Jerusalem, he's on a donkey and all the people are lying in the streets and they're laying down palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now, over the course of the next five days, the tune of the people changes drastically. It's when we go from shouting Hosanna to crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So in this story, we find ourselves on the Monday of Holy Week. While Jesus is preparing for the cross, 
Make no mistake, in the journey to the cross, Jesus is very intentional about everything he does, everything he says, even down to the animal he chose to ride into Jerusalem on. Every story, every encounter, every act is done with intentionality as Jesus is headed to that cross. And so, in reading the cursing of the fig tree, the early Christians saw something that is at front and center to the events of Holy Week. You see, those early Christians would have recognized a number of literary parallels between the fall of man that happens in Genesis chapter 3 and the redemption of humanity that we find in the Gospels. You see, in Genesis 3, we see a man, Adam, who through his disobedience in a garden, the Garden of Eden, brings about death and destruction. And then in the Gospels, we see another man, the second Adam, Jesus, who brings about life once again in a garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he submits in obedience to God, the Father, and he reverses the curse of the disobedience of the first Adam. In Genesis 3, we see the disobedience of Adam and Eve brings about sin and death. And in the Gospels, we see that the obedience of Jesus brings about life and redemption. In Genesis 3, we see a tree, a tree that is at the very heart of the fall, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the Gospels, we also see a tree. We see a tree at the very core of redemption, the tree that Jesus himself would be nailed to, the cross. After the fall, there are curses that are going to come to humanity. And one of those curses is the cursing of the ground. God says to Adam that what's going to come forth from the ground will be thorns and thistles. And when Jesus was crucified, a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And in Genesis 3, the first thing that happens after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree is that they recognize that they are naked and they are ashamed. And because of their shame, they take fig leaves and sew them together to cover themselves. Make no mistake It is not by accident that on the Monday of Holy Week, one of the first things we see Jesus do is curse a fig tree. In Genesis 3, in the fall of humanity, sin and shame enter the world. And none of us are immune. And so we're going to talk about that a minute here because we are all affected by shame. And the first three things that we need to realize about shame is that one, we all have it. Two, we're all afraid to talk about it. And three, the less we talk about shame, the more control it has on our lives. You see, shame caused Adam and Eve to hide. 
They used the fig tree's leaves to hide from each other and they hid from God. And still today, shame causes us to hide as well, which is why we're afraid to talk about it. So to really grasp the gravity of what's happening in both Genesis 3 and Mark 11, we need to understand shame. We need to define it and recognize it. We need to recognize it out there as well as in here. Now, one thing that makes shame so hard to identify is that we use terms interchangeably, right? Quite quite often we lump guilt and shame together, but these two are very different things and they have incredibly different outcomes. See, guilt is about what I do. It's about my behavior. It focuses on our our behaviors and our values and how those two things line up. Whereas shame focuses on who I am. It's about our identity. It tells us that we're not good enough in my own eyes or in someone else's. Guilt brings about this, has this inner tension that brings about remorse and regret. Whereas shame has inner condemnation, which brings about punishment. Do you hear the difference? Guilt is healthy and normal. We can remedy guilt with an apology and restorative steps. And there's no long-term or lasting damage with guilt. But shame is not healthy and not normal. Shame accuses, condemns, and destroys. And it is perhaps the most damaging and devastating human experience. Guilt is a concern for others. We can separate our actions from our identity. I made a mistake. I want to make amends. I want to avoid that behavior in the future. Where shame is turned inward, it's a concern for ourselves. Where our action defines our self-worth. I messed up, which means I want to disappear. Get small. I feel worthless. I feel powerless. I can never fix this. In her extensive study on shame, Brene Brown has identified that shame seems to appear within 12 categories. And this tends to be across the board for most people that this is where we, where we feel the most shame. Um, around our appearance and body image, money and work, motherhood or fatherhood, uh, family, there you go, thanks, Aiden. Family and parenting, um, our mental and physical health, addiction, sex, aging, religion, surviving trauma, past trauma, and being stereotyped or labeled. Now, while we all experience shame, and shame tends to show up within these 12 categories, we can break it down even more when we look at the differences between men and women. Because we tend to experience and feel shame surrounding different things. I'll start with women, because obviously I have a little firsthand knowledge with that one. So for women, uh, studies have shown that the primary trigger for shame is about how we look. Still, even now, with all the awareness and body positive messaging, and, and the body positive language, 
changing Barbie to look different, all of that, (laughs) we still feel the most shame about not being thin enough, young enough, beautiful enough, so on and so forth. Now, interestingly enough, the very close second is actually motherhood. Now, those of you that aren't moms, don't worry, you're not left out here because bonus, you don't actually have to be a mother to experience mother shame. See, society views motherhood and womanhood so intrinsically bound that women are often, their value is often determined by where we are in our relation to being a mom or being a potential mom, right? When you're young and single and haven't gotten married, what's the pressure? It's when are you gonna get married? When are you gonna find the husband? And then when you're newlywed, Sometimes we don't even let couples get off the dance floor at their reception before we're asking them, when are you gonna have kids? And then when you have kid number one, well, that's not enough. When are you gonna have more? Is there more coming? Are you gonna have more? And then if you have more, then it just opens the door for, oh, they're too far apart in age. Why did you wait so long? Or, oh, you had them too close together. That's not fair to them. And then, of course, we all know that you can have too many kids to be deemed acceptable in the eyes of society. I believe four, from what I understand, four is like the limit, right? Once once you hit four, then then that's too many. Yeah, sorry, Betsy. (laughs) And all of this, we haven't even touched on the mom shaming around actually raising the kids, right? Along with this, a huge struggle for women is the expectation to be perfect. But we're not allowed to look like we're working for for perfection. See, women are expected to be effortless, right? That's one of the great compliments you can give a woman or you can receive as a woman is, oh, she makes it look so effortless. It comes so naturally to her. She makes that look so easy. And we've all heard those said, right? You see, women are expected to look and be effortless, but there's, there's this tension and this pull that we get ourselves in because we're expected to be perfect, but don't make a fuss. Don't upset anyone, but do speak your mind. <laughs> be honest, speak truth. Oh, but don't make people uncomfortable, And this one especially, do not, women, whatever you do, don't get too emotional, but don't be too detached either or you come off as cold, right? See, where every woman feels like she's not enough, the expectation is that we must be enough, but not too much. Only be just enough. You can't be too much for the world. Stay small, sweet, quiet and modest. Now, obviously I had to do a little more research to understand men and your shame. And so men, I'm gonna do my best to give words to your shame and I pray that I do you a service with this. See, what what I've come to understand is that where women, the internal message is I'm not good enough. For men, the internal message tends to be I'm failing. I feel like a failure. 
You see, shame for men leads them to live under one relenting message. Do not be perceived as weak. For men, shame is failure. Failure at work. Failure on the football field. Failure in marriage or in bed. Failure with money. Failure with children. Shame is failure. Shame is weakness. Showing fear is shameful. See, while women feel the pressure to be effortlessly perfect, men feel the pressure to be powerful and strong and in control. You men are taught to be our knight in shining armor, to be strong and powerful for us, for the women in your life, for your wife, for your daughters, and I suspect that there are some, many of you in here that feel that we women, the most important women in your lives, would rather see you die on top of your white horse than to have to watch you fall off of it. I'll be honest. Realizing that this week brought me to tears to think that there are some men that feel that way. I can't help but think of the scene in Wizard of Oz. At the very end, when they finally make it to see the wizard who is portrayed as the great and powerful Oz, but pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I think shame for men keeps them hidden behind the curtain while portraying the image of being great and powerful and in control. And I pray that none of us do anything to keep that curtain closed. But I worry that sometimes we do. But really, that's what shame does for all of us. It puts up a curtain or a barrier between ourselves and others, or even between us and God. See, we were created for community. The very first thing that God said after creating Adam is that it is not good for man to be alone. We are meant to connect with one another and to connect with God. And the very first thing that happened after Adam and Eve sinned is they grabbed fig leaves and they covered themselves. In their shame, they tried to hide from one another and they hid from God. Dr. Richard Shaw recognizes and distinguishes ways in which shame shows up in our relationships. Because that's where we really see some effects of shame is how we connect with one another. These are the curtains we use to hide our shame from one another. So as we read through these, perhaps take a moment and see if you can identify any of these where shame affects your relationships, where you see this play out in your own life. So one of the characteristics is control, right? If I control things, if I can control the situations, control the world around me, I can prevent myself from being shamed. Number two is perfection, right? If shame means that I'm not good enough, then perfection becomes the cover to prove that I am. Number three is blame. When I feel ashamed, it's easier to blame others so then I can't be blamed. Number four 
is denial. If I pretend there are no problems, then I can deflect the shame. I don't have to deal with it or process it or feel it. Uh, Number five is unreliability. Our shame leads us to be too insecure and broken to be dependable for others. Number six is disqualification. When I feel so poorly about myself, I disqualify others. Number seven is addictions. Shame is painful, so numb the pain. And number eight is rage. Sometimes it's easier for us to turn our hurt into anger because we find anger easier to deal with as a way of deflecting the pain. But anger can turn to rage when it isn't healthily addressed. So what do we do with shame? How do we improve our relationships that are affected by shame? Brene Brown argues that we can develop what she calls shame resiliency. And she gives us four steps. So here's the practical part of the message, right? These are the four steps that you can go home today and you can start putting into practice to learn how to develop shame resiliency in your life. Number one, that you can recognize shame and understand its triggers. So can you recognize when you're in the grips of shame and feel your way through it and figure out what triggers it? Number two, you can practice critical awareness. Give a reality check to the expectations, the areas where you feel like you're failing or you feel like you're not enough. Those things that drive your shame, are they realistic? Are they even attainable? Or do you feel like you're enough in an area that you have set unattainable goals for yourself? Number three, reach out. A big part of being released from shame in our relationships is to allow others to meet us and greet us with empathy. So are you owning and sharing your story? We can't experience empathy from others if we're not connecting vulnerably with them. And number four, speak shame. Are you talking about how you feel and asking for what you need when you feel shame? When we develop shame resiliency, we learn to respond to shame with awareness, with self-compassion, and empathy. Side note, when you learn to, to respond to your own shame that way, you also learn how to respond to other people's shame that way as well. So we're not keeping that curtain closed on one another. Now, these are the practical steps that we can take personally. But... Don't miss the power of the cross, the work of grace in this. Um, When I was a kid, all of us kids in the neighborhood, amongst a wide variety of ages, we all used to get together and play a game called Kick the Can. Anyone ever played Kick the Can? Okay, we got a few, all right. So Kick the Can is kind of fantastic because all that's required to play is an old empty can. And how this works is you set the can in a neutral location. And while one person counts, everybody else runs off and hides. And when they're done counting, they go out looking. And they're searching for people and trying to find where all the kids are hitting. And when they spot someone, they call out, oh, I see Aiden in the sound booth. And we both race up. (laughs) 
And I touched the can first, <laughs> which means now he's in jail. All right? <laughs> Do you want to participate? Oh, I see Audrey. Oh, but now, no, you get to be in jail too. <laughs> go join Aiden. So now Aiden and Audrey are in jail. And then I continue to go looking. And as I'm looking, if at any point someone who is hidden and not trapped in jail has the opportunity, they, of course, can attempt to beat me, <laughs> beat me to the can and yell out jailbreak and everybody is released. Can we give them a hand? <laughs> Good job, guys. <laughs> so with that, everyone is released and freed from jail, right? And continue to, to play the game. The cross. The cross is the ultimate jailbreak from the prison of sin and shame in our lives. Did you catch that? Everything that Jesus did in Holy Week, all those parallels that we recognized earlier, was Jesus reversing the curse of sin and shame in our lives. It's reversing the curse of the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve ate fruit from a tree and then they grabbed leaves, fig leaves, to cover their shame. It is no coincidence that Jesus cursed a leafy fig tree. Did you catch what he said to the tree? May no one eat of your fruit ever again. He is telling us that what is about to happen is going to reverse the curse of sin and shame for all of humanity. The work of the cross is not just limited to giving us eternal life with God for later, for the next life. Jesus' death and resurrection bring us new life, new freedom here and now. May no one ever eat of your fruit again by cursing the tree, by dying on a tree, by raising to life again, Jesus is calling jailbreak on your shame. You are free to go, free to be let go by, from the bonds of shame. Now the worship band is going to come back up here and Mike's gonna come up and lead us in communion. Now this morning, as you reflect on the meaning of communion and you reflect on the work of the cross, I want to challenge you to take a moment and identify where shame has had you imprisoned, where shame has you hiding behind the curtain. And as you eat and drink, the symbol of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, may you allow him to call jailbreak on the sin and shame in your life.